What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Closing argument. Walter Hudson. Pursuing happiness thoughtfully. 8 to 10 weeknights on Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. Tonight is the last opportunity that Pastor Nathan Roberts will ever have, at least on air, to convince me to become a progressive. And in turn, tonight will be the last time that I have an opportunity on the air to convince Pastor Nathan Roberts that he ought to be a conservative. That's coming up in the 9 o'clock hour on this, our final broadcast together as closing argument proceeds through, marches through, in its final week here on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. My name is Walter Hudson, streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 tonight, tomorrow, and Thursday. And then uh, that's all she wrote. Appreciate you joining us. 651-989-5855 is the number to be part of the program tonight. Those opportunities may... I'll just be quite honest with you, uh, far and few between. Um, we do want to we do want to make sure we maintain our our lines with our callers, but I, I also want to maximize the amount of time we have to discuss with not only Pastor Nathan Roberts but also our guest who is holding on the line, Sheila Wise Rowe. Welcome to the program, Ms. Rowe. Hi, how are you? Very good. Appreciate having you on the program. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, you hold a master's degree in counseling psychology and have worked with trauma survivors you know, over the past 25 years in the United States and also for a decade in South Africa. Yeah. That's uh, that's quite the background. Uh, you live in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. You're a counselor, speaker, spiritual director, uh, and author of a newly released book, which is going to be the topic of much of our conversation tonight, entitled Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. Certainly a provocative title. Appreciate you being on the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, uh, Nathan, uh, being uniquely positioned um, to guide us, help us navigate our way through this conversation, and also seeing as how this will be presumably your last opportunity in quite some time to play radio host, why don't you go ahead and lead us in the uh, the interview process here? Thanks so much. I don't know as the only white person that I'm uniquely positioned to uh, facilitate a discussion on uh, racial trauma, Well, but I'm going to do my best. Go right ahead. Um, So uh, I am wondering, as we have just celebrated the Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Mm -hmm. one thing I was fascinated about having you on and sharing your story um, and thoughts with our listeners is that you have a unique relationship um, to the civil rights and to Dr. King in that 
you were involved in the racial integration of the Boston schools at a young age and saw firsthand the responses of white people and conversations that were happening among black and Latino families um, in response to Dr. King's message for racial unity and integration. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell us about your experience and what you um, remember and what you want to tell people about that experience. Um, well, I, I actually was pretty young at the time. Um, I uh, was born in Boston, and um, initially we lived in Roxbury, which was uh, predominantly black community, and then moved from Roxbury to a part of Dorchester, which is, um, so these are um, communities within Boston proper. Um, in, in Dorchester, we moved into a community that was rapidly transitioning from being uh, mostly white to mixed when we arrived, and um, very quickly there was a turnover, and um, white folk left. Um, there were only a couple of people, uh, there was a, a couple um, of elderly um, brother and sister who were Holocaust survivors, Holocaust survivors who lived next door, and then a biracial couple. Otherwise, uh, we saw this rapid decline in terms of services and, and the school that was only a few blocks from where we lived, and um, there were issues there and in terms of overcrowding and the um, level of um, education that the teachers were giving, the books that we had. Um, there wasn't enough chairs. Uh, it was pretty bad. And during that period, this is the early 60s, um, we basically, the parents, um, really were pushing for the school committee to do something to remedy the situation. And this is prior to any kind of mandated busing program. Um, The parents got together and formed a program called Operation Exodus. And so I was a part of that program. And it was a voluntary busing program, so predated mandated busing um, that happened in the 70s. And we were bused to um, white communities and white schools. And so I attended a school, um, primary school, uh, from first grade. And um, during that time, this is obviously about, you know, this is the civil rights period. Um, Martin Luther King had come to Boston. I held a march um, April 22nd, 1965. And um, that was a a real galvanizing point um, for for the parents and really demanding um, educational equality, but also he dealt with issues around housing inequality, um, income disparity, and it was a remarkable um, a remarkable time. Um, and I and I think in many ways his visit really helped um, the parents to continue to persevere. And and the Operation Exodus program actually happened shortly after that. It was officially launched after he had come to Boston. Um, he had had a, this march on the Boston Common, which is a big area uh, in the center, the heart of Boston, um, where they often have uh, rallies and concerts, and, um, and he gave his speech there. And I, I vaguely remember it, um, because my parents were very, um, very much into watching the news and um, so I, I have a vague recollection of it, but more so, you know, during that period, 
what I saw was definitely, um, you know, this mixed message um, about King. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting what people say about Dr. Martin Luther King now as opposed to what they said then. And, and also my experience as a black child in a white, uh, you know, a white school, um, having everything questioned, my intellect questioned, um, you know, we were um, constantly having to, you know, justify our existence for the most part. Um, there were multiple experiences that I had, um, as well as my sister um, and brother uh, in the school. And, you know, our parents had the best of intentions. You know, they wanted us to have a better education, but one key issue that came out of that for me, and I, I would say for all of us, was that we we were racially traumatized um, from the experience of um, being called, you know, being called a nigger, being accused of cheating, um, just really, you know, being told, you know, we're not, you know, material to either go on and be a teacher or to go to college. uh, And that really did a lot of damage. Yeah, so I wanted to pick up a little bit on one of the things you said about the way that King is perceived now mm-hmm. versus the way you experienced people perceiving him when you were a child, particularly in Boston. And one of the things I think that's remarkable is that 72% of Americans had an unfavorable view of Dr. King in the last years of his life. Right. And 85% of white people surveyed said that demonstrations during the civil rights by black folks was hurting the advancement of the cause. Then flash forward to the end of the 20th century. And now Dr. King is seen as a national treasure and has one of the highest favorability ratings of any American that it has ever lived. How do you account for the transformation of that public imagination, the way that people perceive Dr. King now? Well, you know what? I think that a couple of things, one, um, you know, if there was a choice between, I think for, for the majority white culture between, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, you know, we're talking nonviolence and, you know, the perception that uh, Malcolm X was solely about inciting violence. I think that that kind of swayed people more towards, um, Dr. King. Um, but I also feel like people have cherry picked his sermons and have, the ones that are more challenging, you know, like his Beyond Vietnam message, where he's a lot more angry and more worrying and questioning, there's no mention of those. There's a lot of mention of Eye of the Dream speech. And so I think that over time, there has been that, that narrative shift in terms of what did he really mean and what did he really say. I think this it's the same issue with Malcolm X as well. Um, and so I think that over time, um, he's quoted and, you know, people have, he's become much more, um, much more favorable, even more palatable, I think, for people. Sheila, I have a, a working theory along those lines, and I'd be interested in, in getting your perspective on it, uh, because yours is obviously much more closely tied to the firsthand um, happenings than, than my experience is. And 
that's the idea that as you cite, there was this this difference both in style and content between uh, a figure like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the the cherry picking of the things that King had to say and the the prominence and famous quality of the I Have a Dream speech as opposed to other material he may have wrote and said. I wonder to what extent, because obviously there's a dissonance between the types of things that Malcolm X was saying and the types of things that Martin Luther King is most known for having said. Was there also a, a dissonance of that sort within King's own writings and speeches where that he he took a certain approach in the I Have a Dream speech that was perhaps more sanitized and more marketable to a broader audience as opposed to some of the, the, the more radical ideas that he was comfortable stating in closer company. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. And and it's interesting that, um, so watching a video of, um, they were kind of recounting, so they interviewed a lot of people who had walked with him and, and um, were intricately involved in the civil rights movement with him. And, and they were talking about the I Have a Dream speech that, he, the first paragraph was another speech in which was a lot more pointed and directed and um, the person who wrote the speech actually um, said it was interesting that and, and as he ended that paragraph, Mahalia Jackson, who was a gospel singer, said, tell them about the dream. And then he shifted the, uh, the sermon and then he spoke about the dream. Mm. And um, it, as you see him give that he's not reading any notes it's it's just really it's it's a dream that he had shared apparently with her um and with others and they weren't sure that they didn't think he was going to go down that road they actually thought he was going to read the prepared speech Mm. and um and i think at that at the end of the day you know it it definitely is a it's an iconic speech it was an inspiring speech and it was a hopeful speech and um and and i think it it probably was the right speech for that time. When we return, we're going to continue our interview uh, with Sheila Wise Rowe, who's on the line with us. We have Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio. We're going to continue to talk about uh, not just Martin Luther King, but also the the legacy that he left. And the 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 question that I think Nathan's going to raise when we come back has to do with the, the perception of progress since 1964 since the i have a dream speech and i think it's going to be related and we'll see when we get on the other side to what we've been talking about so far which is the the difference in perception between what progress even means depending upon who you ask we'll get into that when we return 651-989-5855 my name is walter hudson twincitiesnewstalk.com every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. talking about martin luther king one day after mlk day here in studio with pastor nathan roberts on the line we have sheila wise Rowe, uh, who has written a book 
that is entitled, well, I just lost it. My mouse is going crazy on me. Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. We have her on the line, and we were talking uh, before we went to break uh, about the difference in perception of MLK between when he was alive and active versus in the modern era. And, of course, there was a distinct shift in his popularity and his perception uh, when he was alive versus today. And we've been talking about why that is. And then the next place we want to go with this conversation is a, an issue of progress. And, you know, what does it mean to achieve racial progress and how much progress has been achieved? And, you know, along those lines, there's a difference in perception between Nathan and I. And, uh, uh, Ms. Rowe, I wouldn't expect you to know this. You know, this is the first time we've talked and we've never met in person, but, you know, my dad's black, my mom's white. And I was born in 78. So sometime after the civil rights era, uh, it, it is notable. I learned many, many, many years later that a mere 10 years prior to my being born, my parents getting married, it would have been illegal for them to be married in several states. And yeah. so that, that's certainly a sobering thought. But nonetheless, you know, when we, and we're going to get into talking about racial trauma later on here in our conversation. But when we talk about progress and we talk about racial trauma, I have to note that my experience as someone who was born in 78 and has grown up in the United States since then was notably different than the experience of my father. Mm-hmm. To the point where when I was a teenager and entering young adulthood and he would set me down for the kinds of talks that black fathers have with their sons, mm-hmm. I found myself kind of mystified by where he was coming from. Like I didn't see the danger that I heard in his voice. Like it wasn't something that I was familiar with in terms of the type of experience I was having. And I took that to be and, and continue to take that to be a sign of significant progress in those intervening years. And that's a, that's a difference in my perception that is obviously different from the perception of many other people who are black. And it's a difference in perception from that in terms of where Nathan's at in terms of uh, viewing progress. And so I'm interested in your insights into one, why there is, if, if it's, if it's legitimate, if it's an illusion, that there's been any sort of progress made whatsoever, the degree of that progress, and also to the extent that there should be more, why it hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, you know what, I, I, I really feel that, um, you know, racism is it's kind, of, it's kind of baked into the cake of America, and that and it affects us interpersonally as well as systemically. And so I, I feel that oftentimes... If someone is not experiencing it personally, they can believe that it therefore it doesn't exist or it's not as bad. Um, whereas um, there are millions who actually experience it personally as well as systemically. And you know, if you look at the stats in terms of on multiple areas in terms of education, medical care, um, you know, employment equity, um, you see that there's disparity that continues. Now, is it, you know, has have things progressed in slavery? Have things progressed since Jim Crow incrementally? I would have to say yes. However, 
um, when you look at um, just the, the realities of, you know, now, you know, as a black person, you know, I can live in certain communities that I didn't live in before. I couldn't live in before. Um, but, you know, I know for, for even in my, my own family that there were issues around predatory lending. There were ways in which um, there were systems and, and things in place that set us up. And it didn't matter how hard we tried or how educated we were or whatever. <laughs> um, there were things that were set up um, that were sabotaging um, in a way. And so not in a way, blatantly, it was sabotaging. Um, I, I certainly saw that with my grandparents. I saw that with my parents. Um, I saw that even with, you know, my mom and, you know, getting a house and, you know, this, it, and it was basically a predatory lending scheme. At the end of the day, she, she lost her house. Um, but those are, those are just a few examples of um, where I, I feel like, you know, there has been uh, ways in which, you know, black folk have persevered and, you know, we've strived for better lives, et cetera, but there has been sabotage. And even in terms of kind of coordinating, coordinating people into certain parts of town in certain areas, um, all of those things have affected. So one of the things that I think is interesting about the your book um, is that it really highlights racial trauma and the compounding effects of interpersonal racism and larger historical trends mm -hmm. like the disparities you spoke about education, medical care, employment, predatory lending, mm -hmm. and that there's a piling on effect of these events similar. I think you call it racial battle fatigue. Yeah. That is similar to sort of a PTSD that a soldier might experience. Can you talk a little bit about why you find that happening in communities of color and um, and why you chose to use that term racial battle fatigue? Well, you know, one of the, the issues is that, you know, it's it's not only that um, we're dealing with the, the kind of interpersonal um, racist racism, but we are also, um, you know, trauma as a result of that, but there's also vicarious trauma. So there's, um, you know, what the average person, whether, you know, let's say a white person, is watching, um, you know, Michael Brown being gunned down. You know, he's dead in the street, and it's just, you know, so what ends up happening is there's a whole narrative that they may have around that, which is very different than for a person of color or a black person particularly. So a black person seeing this black child is laying dead in the street has a lot more meaning and is a lot more traumatizing because that young man could be my child. Um, and so not only, as I said, are we dealing with things that may have directly happened to us, but we're dealing with um, vicarious trauma. We're, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with issues around uh, microaggressions, whether it's at work, being tailed in the mall, uh, being pulled over by police officers, stop and frisk, um, and they, all of these lead to a place of exhaustion. Um, and 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 that's kind of what I've been seeing. Um, it was interesting for me being away 
So we lived in South Africa from 2005 to 2016, and coming back here in 2016, in the you know right in the middle of the election cycle, and noticing that wow, like a, a shift has occurred, and so and, and noticing that for a lot of of black folk, um, and also other people of color, that they were carrying um, that battle fatigue, they were dealing with racial trauma, uh, you know as things were ratcheting up politically, um, you know, they were seeing increases in the number of, um, you know, whether it's white supremacists, um, you know, the, just uh, this message going out into the airways that, you know what, you don't belong or go back home or where you came from is a hellhole. Um, there were all sorts of narratives that were kind of being spewed out there. And those words... Um, they're connected to things. They're connected to things that we've heard before, uh, and and those things have also been compounded, have caused compounded trauma. When we come back, I want to dive deeper into the particulars of this trauma that's being spoken of, racial trauma, what it looks like, what causes it, and most importantly, how to treat it. Like, what what's the prescription here? What's the prognosis? We'll get into that with our guest on the line. Uh, Sheila Rowe, when we return, Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. What is racial trauma? That's our next question for our guest on the line, Sheila Wise Rowe. And uh, we also have Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio with us. Our final conversation with Pastor Roberts next hour, we're going to do kind of our, our wrap-up review of all of these conversations we've been having on the program over the last year and a half, two years, and uh, try to convince each other to change our ways. He's going to make his best case for why I should go his way, and and uh, I'm going to do the reverse. And so we'll see where that goes. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 8 to 10 weeknights. Brianne taking your calls and producing the show. Um, so, Sheila, you know, when when I hear a term like trauma or PTSD mm-hmm. in reference to to racial experiences in the United States, it's it's provocative and interesting to me and a little bit confusing because when i think of ptsd i think of things like soldiers and you even use terminology along the lines of the battlefield you know i I think of a soldier who's under fire under imminent threat of losing their life on a persistent constant basis and it it creates this traumatizing effect of of just being hammered away at all the time to where when they come home and it's the fourth of july and fireworks go off there's an adverse reaction that is kind of beyond their control. And it, and it it seems as though what's being described here is a, a similar effect in terms of people being exposed to 
uh, microaggressions or, or even more overt examples of racial discrimination and prejudice and it having a similar effect. I guess my question is, is there a spectrum of trauma that we're talking about here? Or you know, how, how is it that being called a, a, a naughty name or being discriminated against at a, at a uh, store by security or pulled over by the police rises to the level of being shot at on the b- battlefield and triggering something that could legitimately be called PTSD? Well, you know, racial trauma really is, you know, it can be defined as the physical and psychological symptoms that people of color experience after, like, after a racist incident. Um, those incidents, you know, are personal, um, and sometimes they do involve violence. Um, they, can be, they can be vicarious. I spoke about that earlier. Um, what happens is that, you know, when our, our brains get a, you know, receive a threat, and whether it's you're on the battlefield and threat happens and the result is PTSD, or you're receiving multiple threats, um, and your, our bodies, our brains are wired to prepare our bodies to either fight or flight, and it, you know, it releases this stress hormone that causes our nervous systems, our hormones, and our mind, our body to be on this high alert. And the problem with, with racial trauma is that because it is relentless and it's ongoing in its various forms, whether it's interpersonal, it's, it's happening vicariously, it's systemic, um, there is not, there's not a way to really stand down. And so we carry that stress in our body and it creates this kind of in, this endless loop where another incident happens and then we have pylon. And so, um, we have people who are walking around carrying um, trauma that is um, over incidents that they've experienced. There's, there's also been research around generational trauma um, and historical trauma that has come for communities. And, and some of that is, you know, they're saying that it could be an effect um, with uh, epigenetics is that it's, weakening the DNA on a certain level, and you can see that physically where in certain communities, you know, there's a higher prevalence of, like, heart disease. Um, but you're all, we're also seeing it, you know, in that some things are passed down just in terms of family, that your family's sharing stories from the past, et cetera, where we're, you know, they're, they're sharing something that happened maybe in the Jim Crow South before they moved north. Um, and, and their children are hearing these stories. Um, and that is, that's also another layer of, of trauma that we're carrying. So, you know, when you describe the, the, uh, servicemen in the battlefield and, you know, the fear, that, that is in essence, you know, one of the symptoms. And, and in the book, I, I, you know, every chapter, um, after the first chapter is really looking at what some of the symptoms of racial trauma and that includes fatigue silence rage fear um, lament shame addiction um, are really things that we see as a result of of folk carrying racial trauma that hasn't been processed and um, you know that they've attempted to manage in some way um, but it has not been successful when i when i think about PTSD in the more traditionally understood form, like going back to the the example of uh, a soldier who is experiencing what they used to call shell shock, 
mm-hmm. uh, and it, they are responding adversely to something like fireworks or uh, otherwise loud noises in a in an innocent context. It it strikes me that what's being described there is a disorder, which is to say that you know you acknowledging that there's a legitimate cause and that mm-hmm. the the person is not responsible for reacting in the way that they are nevertheless what we should be trying to affect through treatment is getting them to be able to respond more appropriately to the reality of the stimuli as opposed to associating it with the past trauma keeping that in mind you know it, does that apply with this racial trauma concept so in other words should should there be any consideration given to whether or not the stimuli that is triggering these type of PTSD style responses in folks is is itself wrong or or should the the focus be on how people are responding rather than what they're responding to um well you know what i think it's both i mean if you're talking about racial trauma the reality is that people are experiencing something that is real um, in, in many cases, and in some cases, that's not the case. Because if if someone has been, for instance, um, an, a young man in the inner city who has been stopped and frisked multiple times, mm-hmm. and there were studies in New York about it, it was absolutely outrageous, the number of stops and frisks, and even in, in Boston. And so you're going to be, you're going to have that kind of a response when you're around law enforcement. Right. There's going to be a triggering because it's based on, it's based on a reality. Doesn't mean that particular officer is going to stop and frisk you. Maybe, maybe not. Um, and so with racial trauma, you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, it's, it is different than PTSD and that the, the serviceman is no longer on the battlefield. Right. So, this whatever the backfiring of the thing that is not a gunshot, it's a backfire. What you're we're dealing with here is both, and we're dealing with the reality. There is a high probability that this kid will be stopped in frisk, um, but in this case, that might not happen. And so the question is, how do you, how does uh, you know a person of color, a black person, navigate through life when the reality is that you know these things that you know you're fearing could possibly be true mm. you're not paranoid if you're actually being followed yeah oh, <laughs> go ahead David so as a white person who works in multicultural settings and has colleagues of color one of the questions that I have is when a white person makes a statement that is racist or maybe it's not meant to be but it is or there's something that a white person does you know you're talking about microaggressions because microaggressions putting a hand on a bag as a person of color walks by and then they're called out for that or that's Mm -hmm. brought up Uh, how do we navigate as white people the trauma that may be coming up in that moment where we're affirming the person but also not patronizing to say oh this isn't really happening you're just having an overblown response because you've experienced trauma does that make sense right it, yeah I, I hear what you're saying but the reality though is that um, you know and I, I talk about this in the in the book is that often you know one of the other things that we experience is gaslighting and that whole term is it's it's new it's connected to the movie gaslighting where the his husband tries to convince his wife like that 
the things that are happening, like paintings that are disappearing and money and that that isn't really happening. And that, you know, for black folk and people of color, like we will see something or have an experience and, and yet we're told that that's not what that was. And we're like, wait a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that is what that was. Um, and there isn't really a discussion around it. It's more of a, like a, an attempt to convince us like that's not our perception of reality is not really true. And so if someone in fact is clutching their bag, then they're clutching their bag and they need to own it and to, you know, if they are in relationship, um, with you to be able to, to discuss what, what was that? And if there was a misunderstanding, then there was a misunderstanding, but, um, you know, too often, you know, we're, there are cues there, you know, that are happening all around us. And unfortunately, um, you know, for black folk, um, and I would say people's call a period is that we go into majority white spaces aware of the environment and aware of who else is here, what is going on, what's the lay of the, am I being perceived, how am I being perceived, am I being welcomed? It's, that's a lot. It's a lot of energy that goes into that, um, that we are constantly having to consider white people. All right. When we return, uh, we're going to have one last, uh, un- unfortunately shortened segment uh, with Sheila Wise Rowe, and I want to ask the question, you know, what's the prescription? What do we need yes. to do? It's a big question. Unfortunately, we're going to have to demand a concise answer. But yeah. what is it that's being prescribed for society in order to treat this and to mm-hmm. to minimize it going into the future? Yep. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. All right, let's get right back into it with our guest on the line, Sheila Wise Rowe. We've been talking to her about racial trauma and uh, reconciliation, PTSD as it relates to the racial experience of people of color here in the United States. And uh, my final question for you here tonight, Ms. Rowe, is what's your prescription? What is it that we need to do both individually, communally, as a society uh, in order to address this issue? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I... I've done in terms of the book and every chapter being a symptom is that it also is a, is a story. It's a story of a person of color, black, indigenous, Asian, um, Latino. Um, there's actually a South African story. There's um, a Native American story. And what I, in the embedded in those stories are their journey of healing. And so there are lessons that come from that. But in the last two chapters, I deal with freedom uh, it is one chapter and the resilience is the other one. And so in the freedom one, it really is looking at what are the things that, um, really facilitate, um, freedom and facilitate healing. And that is doing the internal work as well as an external work. And so the internal work, um, and now, you know, my book is very much rooted in faith. Um, I'm a Christian, uh, and, and so central to this is a belief that, you know, God is involved in our lives you know, intimately, and that the work of Jesus on the cross uh, has, is is for not just our salvation, but also for our healing. And so the internal work that happens um, as a result of uh, our, our really, uh, you know, leaning on our faith, um, our doing counseling, if we need to get counseling, getting counseling, 
um, looking at where where the um, I, I call uh, something. So there's a section about soul injury, um, moral injury rather, and then soul repair, and like how to, the relationship with God that needs repairing. Um, looking at generational trauma. Uh, as well as our own stories and where are the places where we need to release some things, where there's a place of forgiveness. Um, and undergirding that is a belief that holding on to forgiveness is, you know, there's, you know, this whatever trite comment about, you know, it's drinking poison and, and thinking that, you know, the other person's going to die. And so we have the consequences of our holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness and anger is that it takes its toll on us. Um, and so, uh, Part of that work is really healing, releasing um, unforgiveness. Um, and then another part is really um, really getting in touch with who we are as a person created in God's image, yet, you know, in Revelations it says that, you know, there will be every t- tongue and tribe and nation. And so there, there's God validating that there's that diversity. And so... How do I really embrace who I am, you know, whether I'm a black woman or a Latino or Asian, and the fullness of that? And and so there's, you know, there are ways of, of appropriating that, or, you know, taking that in. Um, there are ways in which uh, our experiences, there can be growth and healing that come out of that. And so... That internal work is absolutely important. Then there's the external work, and that is really looking at, um, you know, when we're talking about uh, unforgiveness, there's often this way, there are ways in which we um, dehumanize um, the other. Can we and, just, can we get you to say real quick where people can follow you if they want to follow up on the conversation with that tonight? Yeah, so they can, you know, SheilaWiseRow.com is... Um, my website and i have some things there um i'm also on facebook i'm on twitter and it's at sheila wise row and um uh and instagram very much appreciated thank you for the conversation this evening and you have a good night folks we will be back shortly of our final program with Pastor Nathan Roberts. It all comes down to this. The grand clash between left and right settled for all time. Well, that might be an overpromise. I don't know. It's going to be settled for now. <laughs> Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com, and on your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Appreciate you being with us. Brianne, taking your calls, producing the show. Let's uh, let's hear from Zach in Lino Lakes. Haven't heard from uh, this yeah. caller who used to be one of our regulars in quite some time. Welcome. Um, well, yeah, it's your it's your uh, <laughs> theocratic libertarian again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, maybe I could just share uh, how I approach that issue of race, like that, like they talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. You guys have time. Sure. Uh, so from the let me approach it for both from a theoretical and a you know rubber meets the road sort of angle. See, I believe that one, we are all created in God's image as whole people, both intellectual and and emotional people. Two, sin affected all areas of life, and it's 
there's no area of life that wasn't affected by it, and therefore every area of life needs the redemption that Jesus Christ brings. And so with this in mind, you know, I don't have to be afraid of sounding like a leftist or a conservative or whatever it is. I can, I can look at these issues and, uh, you know, issues like trauma and stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the biblical worldview already explains this because, um, you know, sin has such huge impacts. When you're sinning or being sinned against, it has huge impacts on even areas that we don't fully understand ourselves. See, David says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Which, that, that speaks to how God knows all of us better than we know ourselves. So it makes perfect sense that there could be intergenerational trauma. There could be trauma that's subconscious. And, you know, the thing is, um, here's where the rubber meets the road. Like, I sat next to, uh, to a black coworker at a job I worked at, and uh, she was telling me, you know, uh, everybody's talking about how how, like, you know, if these people uh, were innocent, why would they run away? Well, she explained to me, like, well, you know, people used to shoot black slaves when they were running away, and that sort of thing kind of sticks with you. And I just sat and listened to her. I just sat and listened. I didn't imply that she was some leftist that was trying to push an agenda. I didn't just ignore that. And the thing is, as a Christian, because God created us to be both intellectual and emotional people, uh, that means that I can't just dismiss what somebody says simply because they can't logically explain it in purely intellectual terms. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily wrong, even if they don't have a logical reason for it. That, you know, in time, God could reveal that, yeah, they, they have a point. You know, they're, they're right about that. And uh, so God's concern is with the victims of a crime first, not with the, uh, not with like the uh, perpetrator. He's, he's concerned with uh, justice for those people. And so, uh, you know, I'm more willing to listen to somebody who is not as uh, powerful, not as powerful. And again, that's not a leftist thing. That's just for the same reason I oppose abortion because, you know, uh, an unborn baby is much more vulnerable than a, than a fully grown adult. But because, Racism is collectivism. I have no problem with saying, wow, it's quite likely, in fact, that racism is, racism is deeply ingrained in our culture and something that we still need to repent of today. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, make me into whatever political tribe that people say that it is. It doesn't mean that I'm just parroting the lines from pick your favorite activist group that has things that I don't necessarily agree with always. Mm-hmm. I can... I can I can approach it from a biblical and, to most people, quote-unquote, conservative perspective. And I can still conclude that these are real problems. But because I come at it from an utterly biblical perspective that recognizes the real reasons behind racism, collectivism, I can agree that it's a real problem, and I can also offer a better solution. And it's not just a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a comprehensive issue because the effects of sin are comprehensive and they need the comprehensive redemption that Christ brings. That's what the real meaning of salvation is. Healing for all areas of life, a salve that covers all. All right, Zach, I'm going to put a pin in it right there. Very much appreciate you calling in to share your perspective. And as usual, it is a comprehensive one and I very much appreciate it. 
Nathan, I bet you didn't know you were signing on from that from one of our callers, did you? Have you I think maybe one time before Zach has called in when we had you on, but uh, he, his perspective is always, like he said, he threads the needle. He's getting after his perception of truth, regardless of political affiliation. Yeah. There's a couple things I heard in what he said. One thing I really appreciated was that he listened when someone was explaining the feeling of seeing someone run away from the police and how that brings back thoughts of slaves running away from slave catchers. Oftentimes people don't share those kind of deep fears with coworkers or those kind of deep thoughts with coworkers, unless you really build a friendship of trust and you listen for a long time and understanding that that's something that so many of us need to practice is listening for a longer amount of time mm -hmm. and building trust so that people can share how they're seeing reality and how there's what they're taking from moments. So I really appreciate that. I also appreciate what he said about people with less power in society often see things from a different perspective mm -hmm. and that's really important. And so I thought there was a lot there that I really liked. So let me give you my perspective on the conversation we had last hour. And uh, as usual, it's not going to be the most sensitive in terms of uh, my acknowledgement of the, the emotional proclamations that we've been hearing. So well, the, the comparison in particular with PTSD, and I kind of talked about this a little bit with uh, Sheila Rowe, I find it interesting not just in terms of the accuracy of that, and I don't even know if it's meant to be an analogy or if it's meant to be an actual diagnosis, but regardless, the, w when you think about somebody who's suffering trauma or suffering PTSD and is therefore proceeding through life uh, encumbered by an anxiety when they find themselves triggered by uh, stimuli that bring back those feelings and put them back in those traumatic moments. One thing we don't say, for instance, is that we're just not going to have fireworks anymore, or we're going to make it a crime for your exhaust to backfire, or there, there, there's otherwise some burden upon society to compensate for the, the trauma that you're experiencing. The, the, the focus therapeutically is on treating that anxiety such that your reactions are actually aligned with the reality that you're encountering as opposed to trying to align the reality to compensate for your reactions. And it occurs to me that there's an application of that same idea to these racial issues. Um, and I very much take the point that Ms. Rowe made that it's a little bit different because it, when it comes to these racial issues, there's sort of an ongoing, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like still being on the battlefield, right? Because the analogy that I'm using is one where you were on a battlefield somewhere on the other side of the planet, and then you're coming home to a very different environment. Whereas what she's articulating is sort of like, well, no, you're still there and you're still experiencing the, the, the actual things that caused the trauma in the first place. And so I recognize that at the same time, it ain't the Jim Crow South, right? Like the, my, my neighborhood in, you know, 
northwestern suburban twin cities the 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 state of norwegian dominance is one of the most diverse areas that that you could see. you just go up and down my block and there's it's a rainbow of people right i just don't see how living in modern american society presents one with this type of persistent battlefield style experience and maybe i've just been like uniquely insulated from that totally open to that possibility that i somehow have missed out on perceiving how difficult it is for some people but i have a hard time accepting that i I wonder to what extent there's a i i I struggle to even articulate it but like a, a a almost a desire to call back when you when you look at like the currency of victimization that seems to exist on the left that 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 there's something almost desirable about being able to claim trauma in the in the 21st century i don't know about that um but i will say that my experience of you over the last year is one that i i think of you as a biracial person a person who gets along well with white people and you've talked about having a black and a white parent Mm -hmm. and you embody a melding of social norms and cultural values and so i see you as somebody who gets along really well with white norwegian culture I also tend to think you personally have a very high bar for what you will count as racism. Much higher than a lot of friends of color that I have. So consequently, and I'm not going to dispute you on your analysis, but consequently, I have a very anxiety-free life. Like, I'm not walking around burdened by this trauma that Sheila Rowe describes. I don't have PTSD. Not because I don't live in the same world, as other people of color, but because my, my experience of it, my culture, my personal culture is one that interprets my experiences through a different lens. And it occurs to me that one of the objectives of therapy, when you're trying to treat somebody who's suffering from this kind of a disorder is indeed to put, it's, it's almost, it's analogous to optometry where you're, you are trying to place, you're trying on different lenses until you find one that helps that person function in the world. And so what I'm saying is that perhaps the the real fix here is less communal and more individual in terms of let's find the lens that clears up your perception of what you're working with and what you're dealing with and how important these things really are so that you can actually function. So I will say it's twofold. I think that, you know, recent studies have shown that um, only around 10% of people of color go to therapy in order to deal with racial trauma. And so I think that is a thing that we need to think about making that more widely available. Um, therapy is expensive. It's like a hundred dollars a session and it's not covered by insurance a lot. And it's certainly not covered. If you're in that, if you're in that, area between government assistance and being middle class, it's very hard to afford it because you're not on any sort of government um, 
aid as far as the kind of co- medical coverage right. you get. It's, it's not regarded as a as a uh, subsistence value. Yeah, and it's not considered preventable care, and so it's very expensive. That being said, I also think that white folks, particularly in Minnesota, need to put in a little more effort in trying our best to acknowledge that when you say things that are racialized, when you treat people differently, when you make stereotypes, that there is a history of people like Sheila Wise Rowe who had to fight to go to white schools and it might harken back to some of the things that they said by people who were deeply, deeply hateful and they might have a really strong reaction to that. And let's give space to that and unpack it mm-hmm. instead of saying, well, why are you blowing this out of proportion? I don't think that's helpful to tell someone that they're overreacting to something. I have never met someone who, when they're having a difficult situation or responding to a trauma response, like, oh, quit overreacting. You know, that doesn't help calm people down. It doesn't help people feel better. Like apologizing, being conciliatory, asking people if they need to take a minute and letting them know that you want to hear from them, that you trust them, that you want to ma- repair the friendship and you're willing to do what it takes to, to make that happen. And personally, I think is what Christians are called to do. All right. When we come back, wait, what do I have on the list here? I forget the order of operation we were going to follow here. We, uh, we were going to have Nathan attempt to speak in my voice and, and, uh, Tell us what my worldview is. We're going to do this with each other in turn. Yeah, he's going to be me, and I'm going to be him. And the idea is: have we actually have we actually learned anything about each other over the course of this year and a half, two years of having these Tuesday conversations? Are we capable of speaking in each other's voice? We'll do that when we return. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Yeah, let's take the call from KW because this is going to be a shorter segment and I really want to ha- take the time for us to engage in our little exercise where we try to get in each other's heads and also disclose what we have each convinced each other of. I think I th- that, that was an audible that you called during the break and I think that is the better way to go rather than us trying to make a final pitch of convincing each other to switch. Let's actually confess what we have convinced each other of over the past year and a half, two years. So let's uh, start off by taking this call from KW. Welcome to the show. Hello. And I kind of caught, I came in about, about uh, 15, 20 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure what the context of the conversation is, but That's right. the gist of it is about race. Right. You know, um, why do we use race? You know, it's of black, white, Asian, Hispanic, that, uh, I think they get into what you call a linguistic racism. Um, but as you know, black people in, in particular, uh, there's been a, a, you know, it's been systematic since a thousand years ago regarding the, the black race. Um, we're considered inferior in many ways. Why? Is it because of power? Because the, the white race may think or they feel that they are superior to the black race 
and in order to keep their superiority, they have to, uh, I guess, uh, create a a societal uh, reasoning for, you know, black people are, are, are less intelligent. Uh, we can't educate them. Now, uh, all this is based on my own personal history, but I'm not quite sure how race plays into other places in the world in terms of Africa, in terms of Asia, and in terms of Europe. But I do know that no matter where you go in this, on this planet, uh, black people are not looked at the same as you would look at a white person. You know, it is what it is, but, you know, that's just life. But wh why is it why is it like that, though? Why is it that, that the black man always get the short stick? I appreciate the comment, as always, KW. Nathan, you, know, you got a thought on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, thanks for the call and the sad reality that you've pointed to. Historically, my thoughts, having spent time in Kenya with Kenyans and colonialism of the British there, racism in America, is that in order to steal the resources, exploit the physical labor of black and brown bodies around the world and their country's natural resources, you have to justify a reason why you can do that and why white people are entitled to do that when it is clearly wrong. And so in order to justify enslaving black folks, to justify stealing the natural resources of Africa, of Asia, and of South America, white people in power who knew what they were doing was wrong created a narrative of the racial inferiority of black folks. And it is one of the most insidious lies that white people have ever believed. And they continue to believe it because they benefited from it. And that is the great sin of white folks, is that we continue to benefit from it. And when we are accused of believing in it, and when white people are accused of benefiting from our whiteness at the expense of our black and brown Body neighbors, we become defensive and angry because I think on some level there is shame and a knowledge that that is the reality and that the gains that so many white folks have made over their black and brown neighbors are unfairly gained and um, illegitimately maintained. Yeah, I'm just studying your response because I have to be you when we get on the other side of the break when I uh, articulate your worldview and your voice. Make sure to say terrible things about white people. <laughs> of course, that's got to be part and parcel. We'll do that when we return. He'll be me and I'll be him. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio, TwinCitiesNewsHawk.com. All right, so just to make it clear what it is that we're actually doing here with this exercise, it's, it's not my desire to imitate Nathan here when I try to speak in his voice. What I mean by speaking in his voice is I, I merely want to try to see it, see if I'm capable of accurately articulating his worldview, his perspective as a progressive. And I want to see if he's capable of doing the same 
of my worldview and my perspective as a conservative after having spent so many nights over the course of the past year and a half, two years talking to each other. Have we have we developed the ability do we understand each other enough to be able to speak for the other that's what we're going to find out here on closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 103.5 fm streaming at twin cities news talk.com and your iheart radio app we are here eight to ten weeknights brianne producing the show for us this evening so here's my attempt to uh to be you nathan so as a progressive it's my uh, deeply held belief that it's very important that we take a look at the, the structures of institutions of power in our society in order to ensure that certain uh, groups of people are not being left out in the cold, are not being left behind. Uh, injustice is evident wherever disparity rears its ugly head. Uh, we can look at a wide variety of statistics which indicate um, that there are, are certain groups within the, the strata of society that have been marginalized, that are underrepresented, that are underserved. And these are all evidences of systemic oppression that must be confronted, confessed, acknowledged, called out. And we need to repent of it as a society. And the way to do so is to not just to talk about it and to... to in particular, it very much depends upon who you are in terms of what the proper response is. If you are a person who has benefited from these injustices, then you need to keep your mouth shut and you need to listen to people who have been affected by it. Um, and, and indeed, if you're somebody who's been marginalized, then we need to listen to your voice. We need to hear you and, and listen to your experience and value it and weigh it. And when we look at an aggregate of the lived experience that is shared by those who have suffered in these marginalized groups, then we'll begin to discover uh, a pathway to how to adjust the current structures in our society that have been historically and systemically oppressive uh, and then take appropriate steps, whether that be something along the lines of, of reparations um, other redistributive programs, um, means to ensure that uh, people have uh, equal means to pursue um, their values, uh, equal access to education, equal access to housing, medicine, food, the provisions that are required in order to sustain and further life. And uh, as a Christian, as a progressive Christian, it's extremely important to realize that this is what our Savior, Jesus Christ, would have called us to, is to uh, advocate for a state and social policy which would most benefit the least of these. That's my rendition of the worldview of Pastor Nathan Roberts, who sits across from me. How'd I do? Well, I got bingo a couple ways on my progressive Christian bingo card. Okay. Um, obviously, uh, you got injustice and disparity. <laughs> Uh, marginalized, uh, repent, system, systemic oppression, identity and listening mm -hmm. uh, was huge. Uh, adjust structures was a nice touch. E equality, the focus on equality, um, ensuring that we have housing, medicine, and food. Right, yeah. Uh, that was huge. Uh, Jesus Christ and state and social policy 
was a nice coup de gras at the end there. Sure. Um, no, I thought you nailed it. I thought you crushed it. All uh, right. Well, I feel pretty good. Yeah. Now it's your turn. You you tell me what I think. <laughs> so, as a conservative, I think one of the one of the pressures that we experience from the left is to just cast off all of the historical and cultural values that have been handed down to us from generations. They want us to just throw off traditional heritage, like the Bible and the Constitution, these documents that were crafted because white men wrote them. Sure, they're not perfect people, but these are brilliant leaders that have carried us for 200 years. Because once you throw off these guiding documents, suddenly our values, our families, our structures, our neighborliness, our spiritual lives are all thrown into disarray. And that's when they can begin to show us and sell to us anything that they want. But we must remain vigilant because freedom is a precious right endowed to us by our Creator. We must remain vigilant and protected from the external and internal forces that the left would have throw our way. And one of the gravest threats is the progressive pressure to change and altogether abandon what we have known to be true through common sense. They want to infiltrate the government when the government is in fact to be a firewall against outside threats and a protector of individual freedom. It is there to be a fence so that one can live one's life according to one's values in the way that one chooses. This is the great American experience and the great American experiment. And when we get distracted and begin to think that the government can actually fix our problems for us is when we open the door to government overreach and forfeit our God-given right to liberty. That's not bad. That's not bad. I mean, it's not a bullseye, but it ain't too shabby. I mean, you could you could fill in, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a call from uh, Josie in Dresser, Wisconsin. We've only ever had one other caller from uh, Dresser, Wisconsin, but tonight we've got uh, a second citizen from that uh, grand metropolis. Josie, welcome. Yeah, thanks for taking my call, Walter. The last thing that I could ever learn from Nathan after having been a woman for three months is why am I not yet menstruating? Joe from Dresser, this is, your, this is our last interaction. Disrespectful. It's our last interaction. And I'm going to say that I have appreciated you because you have given me the opportunity to dig into some deeper emotional resources than I knew that I had. You really have. You've you've been like I don't know what's what's uh, that because you've told the boxing story right? Yeah. About your attempt at at physical combat that turned you into a pacifist. A pacifist. Joe has toughened you up. He Joe, you have given me the gift of toughening me up. You you don't probably don't know this, but you nearly broke me on one call. I saw it with my own eyes. I 
was gonna lose it. I was literally about to lose it, and it's a nervous breakdown. I was, and I could have said something that maybe I wouldn't have been able to show up on Sunday at my church because it was just, I was, I was feeling a lot of feelings. And you know what? You you pushed me there, and you made me grow, and I think I'm better for it. So I appreciate your calls, and I, I rarely appreciate the content, but I do appreciate the calls. Well, I'll end on a positive note. You've said two things that I have agreed with you on. Uh, one was you were talking about a girl that thought that God cared what kind of pants she picked to wear, and you said that was not true. I agreed with you on that. <laughs> and there was another one. Um, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something to the effect of Zimbabwe is in Africa. And I agree with you on that one. I'll never forget when you invited me to cage fight you on live radio. That was really, that's when I knew I wasn't in liberal Kansas anymore. All right. Very much. Still stands. (laughs) Very much appreciate the call. Uh, Josie from Dresser, Wisconsin. When we come back and we're going to confess Nathan and I, what we have convinced each other of over the course of the last year and a half. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1135 FM, Twin Cities News Talk. Here it is, the final segment of the final closing argument with Pastor Nathan Roberts in studio. My name is Walter Hudson, and we're going to spend our, our last segment with each other on the air confessing what we have uh, convinced each other of what have what has nathan convinced me of that i wasn't convinced of before we started having these tuesday conversations and vice versa what have i convinced him of and we're going to start with that with with nathan's confession as it were uh, what did i get through that that uh, resolve that defense nathan one of the things i've really taken away from our conversations is that I have developed a bad habit among hanging out with progressives of framing discussions around combative and vaguely defined talking points. And often that habit has come from being around progressive people who are looking to score woke points more than they are looking to have a conversation. Mm. And so I will use talking points like white supremacy or capitalism or identity politics that are not well-defined and are shorthand for some really big ideas. And by doing that, I subvert the opportunity to have a conversation because we start arguing about terms and you are always really good at defining terms before we start the conversation so that we don't get caught in that trap. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I've really taken from your approach to recognize that sometimes we are speaking two different languages. Yeah, definitely. Um, Another thing that I've learned is that you've really reminded me that states and local municipalities are uniquely equipped to meet the needs of local people Mm -hmm. and that Democrats and progressives are way too quick to start a federal program and that federal programs are large and clumsy and often very corrupted by Washington politics and 
lifelong politicians and corporations and in liberals quest to make America better and in their own image, they subvert local freedoms in this sort of really negative way of believing, well, we don't trust local municipalities to do the right thing. So we're going to have to do make this big federal program. And I think that that is not only a very bleak way to think about people, but also unfair to municipalities rights. That's fantastic. And I've, I I have watched as each of those things, like, well, like we said with Joe and we joked about, we were talking about with Joe from dresser, but truthfully, your your capacity to engage in conversation without getting, for lack of a better term, I mean, we used the term shell shocked earlier, right? Like without without getting dazed, has improved exponentially. You know, I mean, you can hang in there now when somebody's coming at you, and that's something that, much like what you said, if if you don't expose yourself to having those kinds of arguments, then that skill isn't going to be developed. Yeah, and I'm incredibly grateful you've brought me on. I mean, it's very rare that someone would get to log this many hours on live radio with no credentials and a completely opposing worldview. I mean, that's just not common. That's true. I guess I never really thought about it because it's just... I I don't I don't analyze our choices in through that kind of a rubric. I just did what I thought was interesting, and I'm glad you were willing to come along for the ride. So here's what I've learned, uh, what you've convinced me of, and I'm really glad for this. You have helped me develop what I think is a transformative, in my own view, skepticism of corporations, and you you've you've made me realize through our conversations and the conversations we've had with others that there is a profound need for a greater amount of nuance in how the right approaches the the concept of a free market and that we really need to evaluate some of the premises that we've been operating under for decades, that we should not take it for granted that the status quo of business actually translates into a free market. And a point of fact, it very much does not. If, if the objective of the state uh, under a conservative worldview is to affect a society where people truly can pursue the values that they choose free of the coercion of others, then we, we should bring that premise to the question of how a legal creature such as a corporation is structured. Is it structured in this way to actually affirm the rights of the people that are involved? Or is it structured that way in order to actually encroach upon the rights of individuals who are interacting with that entity that has been legally created by the state. It's not a thing in nature. It's not something you can go out and, and find in the woods, right? Um, and also, you, you've instilled in me a healthy skepticism, and this is kind of a general application of, the, of that specific principle, a, a healthy skepticism of non-state power. You know, I think for libertarians, our critique of power is very narrowly focused on the state, statism, things that the state does. But there are other forms of power that can be utilized to encroach upon the rights of individuals. And the the proper role of the state, actually, is to be a check on that kind of power. That's specifically why the state ought to exist. And yet, while we talk about that in theory, 
we have not fully thought through, I believe, how it applies. You know, it, it's kind of a, I, I guess the, the way to summarize all of that is that we need to go back to the drawing board of these ideas and figure out how they actually apply in the real world. So all of that said, very much appreciate, once again, your willingness to to come on the program uh, for as many times as you have and to bring your guests on. There's no doubt that our listeners have been exposed to perspectives that they might not have been exposed to otherwise. It's always great to hear it firsthand, and uh, I hope it's been a, a worthwhile experience for you and a worthwhile experience for our listeners. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate uh, the production team that we've had. Yeah. Um, so grateful for our engineers and um, for everybody who makes this possible. And my hope is that our listeners continue to have conversations with folks that they think they might not have anything in common with because they might find that they agree on more than they expect. Well, and when we do discover in mass what those points are that we agree on, it's going to be a dangerous force for those clinging to the status quo. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.